0: Hey, welcome to the latest episode of the Rust Game Development Podcast. I'm Richard Patching, and today I have the pleasure of chatting to Chris Parsons about uh, procedural generation and indie games development. Um, So why don't you introduce yourself, Chris?
1: Hi, everybody. Um, So like Richard said, it's great to be here. My name's Chris. I've uh, most recently, um, I'm kind of working in the film industry, although I've got a kind of long history of working in both AAA at the beginning of my career and also indie game development um, I've been uh, working on games, I guess, on and off for my entire life, really. Ever since I learned how to program, I was always writing games. And um, I, then my first job in the industry was uh, with a company called Elixir Studios, working on uh, Republic, the Revolution, and then later Evil Genius, uh, the original game. There's a sequel in development, which is quite exciting to see. So I worked on that early on in my career and then kind of have been in and out of the industry ever since. Most recently, I uh, put together a procedural generated indie game called Soul Trader. Um, and now I'm working on other kind of projects in my spare time.
0: That's so cool. Um, I know about Soul Trader a lot because we kind of worked
1: we alongside worked each other. Together, which was fun.
0: So interestingly, Chris was actually, uh, in a previous life, my boss. Um, so he employed me Excellent. straight out of university he yeah. <laughs> was uh, so yes yeah, so he employed me out of university and um,
1: for the record Richard was a great employee just so everyone knows <laughs> I
0: was I yeah. was <laughs> and um, yeah then you, you got the idea uh, for working on a space simulation game and um, in particular what really interests me about um, the development was the procedural history I know we kind of been really inspired by games like Dwarf Fortress, um, and, and the procedural yeah. generation that um, yeah. happens in that. And um, I think there's like a really unique aspect to to Soul Trader um, in terms of its procedural history generation. So, um, tell us a bit about how um, the history is generated, um, and wh- when you start a game. Kind of where it places you. Um.
1: Sure, yeah, happy to do that. So, so just before that, just to talk with you a few about a couple of my inspirations. So, Richard originally introduced me to Dwarf Fortress, probably back in about two thousand and eight or nine, I think, when it was quite new. Uh, when we were working together, and uh, he, uh, I was completely hooked. He was right. He, he's, I remember him saying, "You're going to love this game, Chris. Um, you know, you're going to lose your weekends to this game." And he was quite right. You know, I, I loved the game, and I was really inspired by the the idea that it wasn't just a a game but it was it was something that was trying to generate an entire history or or entire set of legends that you would then sort of have games within and then the games would would start and they would finish but the history would go on and there were different modes you could play as an adventurer or as a fortress builder and, and the history would go on it's it's fascinated me that 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 kind of was possible and i hadn't really thought about that before so so really after after um uh, playing that for a very long time, I ended up uh, looking at uh, to, i had always been interested in working on a kind of an RPG elite style game um, and uh, have been, been kind of working on prototypes ever since university and decided to kind of fuse this history generation idea with that space game. And so what what it does is it it kind of starts in a similar way to a Fortress, but obviously in a science fiction universe, it, it sets up the world. Um, at, I think it's, it's about the 24th century or thereabouts. And it um, uh, it basically generates 200 years of history. So it starts with a bunch of starting characters. And then uh, in the world, there's about um, a thousand of them or so. And then what it does is it, it just ages them and it applies different events to them each year. And different that can affect their different attributes. Um, and also there's... They obviously spawn in lots of different cities around um, around the solar system, and then people in the same city might meet, and then some of them form relationships, some of them then have children, um, and then those children then grow up and have their own events, get their own jobs, which might take them to other cities, and so on and so on. So so the kind of world grew from that point. Um, so by the end of the history generation, um, about 180 years into that, you've got multiple generations that have, that have kind of lived and, and died within this world, and then uh, the first action that a player takes in a new game is to choose uh, the couples for whom that they could, the, their character will be born to. So you get to choose your parents, uh, which is quite cool. So you get to choose all of these different couples and you can even choose characters that are having an affair that's secret from their from their spouses, which is quite fun. That's always a bit challenging because usually you start being estranged from one half of your family, but it's, it's a really interesting um, dynamic. And then from there, you get to make the choices uh, from that child's birth all the way through all of the choices that are made automatically by the engine you get to make those choices up until the age of 18 and then at 18 the game kind of dumps you into the game proper where you can then uh, kind of live in this world that you've created
0: and, and actually choosing your parents actually has an effect on your stats yeah, massive
1: effect um, so all of your stats are based on your parents so it's, it's entirely genetic so you want to carefully check them another really good thing to do is to check uh the profession of the character so you can be born to like if you want an easier start in life, you can be born to like a president and a senator or something like that. Um, that. That goes quite well for you in terms of your contacts and your network. But if you want to be born to someone who's homeless and living in a park, you can also do that too. But it, that, that will be a more challenging game start for you. Um, and, and you can get to, you're kind of creating your own story within that and choosing your own difficulty through that process. You know, you can start with literally no connections and no money and that's fine, um, but you'll have a very different game.
0: I remember, I remember going to sort of game shows and demoing the game um, at EGX and Resed in the UK, which is kind of the equivalent of Pact and uh, E3, um, and demoing this to journalists, and there was always two things that kind of really always struck out, was the fact that you have this really rich game uh, with kind of a few hundred years of procedural history, and we would take them through uh, all the character generation, and they would see their grandparents and their children, and Uh, and how the family tree kind of evolved over time and all of their professions. And actually, as you start talking to people, you start to learn more about how everybody's lives are kind of interconnected. And that always kind of blew them away. And the other thing was the fact that how do you do this in terms of performance, because that's really difficult to do, and, and it's something I've kind of tinkered with roguelikes likes and um, procedural generation. And actually, something that's really, really hard to do is is to generate all of this history and to have um, all of your proc gen code, but have it be performant. So, when you talk a bit about uh, your your architecture and the sure. tools you used,
1: I mean, performance was always a huge, a huge difficulty with something like this. And I, and I think, I mean, I custom built all of the. Um, the internal um, uh, data structures and that kind of thing in order to really try and make sure that um, the the game was running as fast as possible. I didn't use Rust, actually, but I did um, I was it was all coded in C and the, the entire engine was actually a custom engine, which is not necessarily something I'd recommend, certainly not these days, but the game came out in 2016. so maybe it was a slightly less insane choice at that point but, but anyway um, <clears throat> so so the, the the difficulty was always, tracking all of the data and specifically tracking how every character felt about how every other character in the game. Um, And that was always a huge performance issue because when you had several thousand characters, you know you've got millions and millions of data points there uh, to keep track of. So that was always really difficult uh, to manage. Um, And the game was it was slow to generate. It did take a couple of minutes to generate. And I kind of wanted to I had lots of ideas for how to make that faster. And and actually I think if I was to do it again, I'd really like to experiment with turning the whole process on its head. And um, starting with a uh, starting with now, and then sort of filling in the past as you learn more about the character, sort of doing it as you go. But that's a whole other topic. But but at the time, it was it was just trying to make sure that a year wasn't completely wasn't going to attack the computer when it was processing it. Um, and yeah, a lot of a lot of custom code, a lot of a lot of um, optimizing C code in order to make that happen.
0: Yeah, cause even by twenty sixteen standards, I mean. Sort of CPUs have come on a little bit over the last. Yeah, few they years, have, and uh, I think
1: people who have got more more modern computers certainly um, find it easier to run now. No one complains about the speed anymore, but they did. They certainly did at the time. Um, <laughs> but also because the game wasn't multi-threaded, I had to because it was my own engine. I had to figure out <laughs> tricks in order to get the frame rate um, running appropriately, so that the audio wouldn't stutter and things like that. That was that took an awful lot more time than it should have done. Um, and I think that that actually now I probably would just use an engine to plug it in rather than trying to you know write my own audio engine and my own graphics engine which was great a learning experience but very much unnecessary now but i think i think from the performance perspective it was storing all of that data and accessing it quickly enough um cpus are quite good at, and memory um constraints mean that cpus are quite good at loading a chunk of data and processing it all at once and then loading it back whereas actually there's a lot of random access that happened with different um uh, different um um, characters wanting to know about other characters uh, and that kind of thing. So that was a that was a real challenge to get right.
0: How did you structure the data in terms of kind of holding that in memory?
1: So the data was structured in, in basic flat C arrays. Um, I tended to keep all of the, it was using an entity component system. So I was um, making sure that all of the data uh, for particular characters, relationships was all stored in one place for every character. So the way that that worked is that, um, basically, you had a, um, a character's had a fixed set of, I think, they could know about 20 different people at once. And as soon as they got to know somebody else, um, someone that, that they didn't know very well would drop off their list, uh, which meant that the, um, uh, the character was, um, so there was always a fixed amount of people that you would know, and those arrays were structured basically one after the other. So you could load an entire, all of the relationships uh, from the entire world into memory at once and then you would process just the relationships um, and you would try and limit the amount of random other information you were getting and because we did that in one block and then we did you know, the character's attributes in one drop and then the character's professions in one block um, it meant that you were you were limiting the amount of different bits of memory you were accessing at once so instead of grabbing memory from all over the place it was actually reasonably fast um, and the way I did that was to uh, basically when the game started it allocated um, about a gigabyte and a half of memory um, as one, um, it's not contiguous, but it, but in a uh, with with the way that memory is managed in a page memory system in an modern operating system, it it came out as a continuous memory with continue a continuous pointer space, and then I would carve that memory up into chunks, and then and then use um, and basically create structs or or create allocate spaces for structs within that memory. Um, so so all the memory is allocated once. There was only ever one, I think one or two. Mallocs in the entire game. Uh, So, therefore, there wasn't this kind of random pulling of data from all over the place in memory. As far as possible, it was kept in contiguous blocks. Um, And that speeds up um, the process for managing these kind of things um, dramatically.
0: And it also makes save games easy, right?
1: Well, yeah, I mean, it, it does. It does, although there are some pros and cons with things like that. So, with save games, Yes, you can just dump the entire thing, and therefore saving was incredibly fast. Um, it could easily happen within a frame, um, and so you'd you'd never notice when the game saved. However, because you just you know writing a gigabyte of memory to disk, or, or no, actually it was less than that. It was more like because a gigabyte was all of the memory, including all the assets. So the actual save game data was was more like forty to sixty megabytes. So that was very fast. But loading it in, you had to fix all of the pointers as it came back in, which was which was problematic and and slow. Um, but also, uh, you had to um, Anytime you changed any uh, struct in the game, um, you you basically leave everything else out of alignment. So that means that you can't, uh, whenever you add or change data about any aspect of the game, it invalidates all of the previous save games. Which can be a real challenge.
0: I mean, I remember this being kind of a, a early release. This was a bit of a sticking point because people kept losing their save games because we kept... I think you felt at the time that you released maybe a little bit too early or the game wasn't oh, yeah. quite...
1: It should have definitely gone into early access to start with. I just released it as a finished game, which was a mistake. And um, and I did about... And it was broken, you know, on release. I had to do about 10 builds in, in about 10 days in order to fix all of the early problems, yeah. So I think So I think that that invalidating save games was a bit of a problem um and in the end what i ended up doing was padding structs with extra memory i just used to create like chunks of uh, array arrays in um it, at the end of my structs so that if i added extra fields up to a certain point i wouldn't invalidate save games um and and that actually worked quite well um i traded off a bit more space but it made the, it meant that i could easily um not invalidate so games and that uh, that was my solution in the end when i figured out how to do that
0: so tell us a bit about um, the actual release itself. I know there was a kind of few teething problems, and uh, it's, it's actually—I'm kind of blogging about this at the moment—that it's actually really, really, really difficult to finish a game. And I, I'm writing a blog post a little bit about motivation versus discipline. So this kind of idea that that you start a project and you're really motivated and mm-hmm. you're excited about it. Once you actually get into the nuances of the problem, and and games development is extremely hard to do it's, it's hard, um, and hard you, you, yeah and you burn out really fast um mm. yeah and yeah. all of that motivation that early motivation goes and then suddenly you kind of come up with a new idea and then you
1: and that you hit this
0: cycle of if i feel motivated and i feel energized to work on this and it's a really great thing and then you start to hit the the big problems and mm. the difficult things to implement and the bugs and then you've this is before you've even thought about marketing and dev blogs and all of that kind of thing and before you know it you you're kind of a bit done and you can't even look at your code anymore
1: absolutely and we all have these half abandoned game projects don't we that we wish we'd wish we'd worked on but can't bring ourselves to finish
0: yes and and i just think it'd be really interesting to hear your thoughts on um how you actually went from you know kind of early prototype um to your finished a real high level, you know, kind of early prototype to finish product. What did that journey look like?
1: I mean, I started it in 2012, I think. Um, and funnily enough, though, it was, it was an interesting start and probably meant that I actually finished it because I started writing it in Ruby as a, as a little fun hobby project for my kids who were quite small at the time. And um, I, it was fun and I was working on it. And then I wrote a blog post on my blog, which was occasionally kind of got some traction, um, but I wasn't writing very much at the time. And I, I wrote this post about... Uh, The fact that I had to switch away from Ruby because Ruby's, at the time, its garbage collector was too slow to fit inside a frame. So you could get stutters in your frame rate, which just wasn't working. So, So I switched to C++ or C eventually at that time. And I wrote a blog post about why I switched away from Ruby C++. Went massively viral on Hacker News, probably for all the wrong reasons. But it did mean that people were clamoring for information about the game I was writing so this was quite interesting and I ended up posting a tiny screenshot after three days work and people were like this is great and I got hundreds of people signing up to my mailing list um I just stuck a little mailing list thing there and and clearly there was enough traction that it meant that people were excited about it so so that was cool um and then after that I kind of worked on it uh for a long time just on and off as I was working on other projects so it was kind of a fun side project and because there was no pressure I just kind of cracked on with it really and did different things and got a little bit stuck. Um, and then gave up on it because I just thought I'm never gonna finish this and went went back to kind of web game programming for six months and, and did a web version, which was fun. Um, just to try some ideas out. But then but then I remember actually talking to you Rich about finishing it. I said wondering whether I should start again. And he was like, You should you should start it again. So I so in twenty thirteen I went back to it, end of twenty thirteen. Um, and at that point I think I'd I put it on green light like a year before and uh, or I decided to put it on green light at that point, and then talked about maybe doing a Kickstarter for it. Um, and um, uh, and and at different times, people were kind of interested in what was going on, and I get encouraging emails, and so that kind of kept me going. Those encouraging emails that occasionally kept coming in, and I was still learning. I think one of the key thing motivators for me is learning new things. So I loved learning about you know, writing my own engine. I loved it. I enjoyed learning about audio, how to manage that. I enjoyed learning about uh, eventually, I got into um, watching a, a video blog series by Casey Muratore called Handmade Hero, which is a really excellent uh, tutorial, very long tutorial about how to, he's writing his own game engine. Uh, and uh, I really got into that, and and then re- basically rewrote the entire game and learned an awful lot about memory management C and C and that kind of thing. So that was really interesting. And and because I was still learning, I was still enjoying the process. Then I did a Kickstarter. The Kickstarter failed, which was very depressing um, at the beginning of twenty fifteen. But then the same day or the same weekend that the Kickstarter failed, the game got greenlit because it had been on there for two years and eventually got the right number of votes. So it was a real rollercoaster. But because of these kind of little kind of bumps of motivation during the way and, and combined with a bit of discipline along the way, it was mo- it was pretty rocky but it was mostly kind of motivation rather than discipline I think. Um, and I was enjoying the process of learning how to write my own GUI because I ditched um, the GUI library I was using I wrote my own which which I enjoy doing and, and eventually learned about history generation and, and, and built a whole system around that. That was lots of fun. And I think the last six months though were a real grind uh, and I'd got so far and so I'd done a bunch of marketing for it and A whole bunch of people were quite interested in it, and I took it to shows, and people were encouraging me. Um, so, it kind of rode on that wave of of encouragement, and then I released it eventually. Again, like I said, a bit too early, um, but I was kind of done with it at that point, and almost released it because it was I was ready to ready to release it. And and again, I should have done early access, and there's lots of things I could have learned from that process. But um, but by then, YouTubers and podcasters have picked it up, so so people were playing it, and that was exciting to see. So I suppose um, it was, and then Rock Paper Shotgun picked it up, which was fantastic. So I think with all of the different kind of uh, bits of motivation that were coming from those things, I think that's what carried me through. Eventually, it was hard. It was a hard slog, though. And when I wasn't, um, you know, that th- those were kind of uh, the highlights, but there were quite long periods where you just had to crack on with it and keep working. And because I enjoyed the process of writing code and, and making stuff, that was that was what kept me going. And because I was trying to learn new things as I go, um, I think I think what I've learned about it from myself is that I'm not actually necessarily very good at um, working on something or polishing something or finishing something where I'm not learning something. So I always try and find find something, some new angle to take on a particular problem so that I can uh, learn about how to do a new or a different thing and then that helps to motivate me to actually get that thing done and you can even do that uh for a thing that you've done 100 times before so you can use a slightly new framework or you can use a new language or you can use a different way of managing your memory or or anything that requires you to just find out something um that's what keeps motivating me it keeps me keeps me going but yeah it doesn't any easier though it's it's really hard <laughs>
0: Absolutely. I think this is something that will really speak to uh, the Rust community in particular, because the the tooling hasn't existed for a long time. And there isn't a lot of solutions and libraries out there that you can just harness and get going straight away. And I think that Rust is very much spoken to the tinkerers and the curious minds, Mm -hmm. Um, those people that just love learning, and they love the exploration and pioneering something new. And I think just picking up, you know, the Rust language. And again, just, just sitting there with a SDL window or, you know, yeah. I think there was early tooling like Piston and Gleam, um, which are kind of very early um, sure. tools, and libraries that, that sprung up, but, but have not having the luxury of, you know, Unity or Godot and, and Godot actually has native Rust um, integration now, which is really cool. Yeah, but, that's fantastic. But, back, but that's only kind of sprung up recently. And, and, just finding that joy again of of tinkering and you know kind of learning things from scratch and and the grounding that that gives you and, and I always when I approach projects now I instinctively know how long things are going to take so whereas before I'd probably quite naive and I would tackle projects, and I think right this is only going to take me three months to develop and actually in the end you know kind of two years down the line you're still mm-hmm. tinkering around and and you have and I remember Soul Trader being a little bit like that. Um, kind of in the middle of the development phase, in that you had a pretty decent version, which kind of was quite feature complete, and mm-hmm. then you almost completely stripped it back yep, and I did. Kind of rewrote the entire game in a very short amount of time. Kind of taking what you yep, learned,
1: pretty much. I mean, I, I from 2015, probably March of 2015, and to to when it came out in June 2016, I rewrote the entire game from scratch. Um, so and I, that was part time I was not working on that full time I, I was still working on I was at times spending uh, for money I was uh, training and, and coaching people so so that was uh, it was only possible because I'd learned everything that I'd learned before but if I hadn't done that I, I'd really coded myself into a corner with a bunch of my library choices and, and the game architecture and I did need a uh, one of the reasons was as we were talking before was performance the history gen was just too slow and i had to rewrite it and and learning new memory management techniques helped me to make it performant but but yeah i think um if i hadn't done that i don't think the game would have come out because i felt that i really needed to um give it a, a completely fresh look and it was an, it was the motivation i needed to actually move on to the next phase um, especially after the Kickstarter um, had failed, and I ended up running another Kickstarter in the September, and that succeeded, which was fantastic and it really gave me motivation to to move forward um, as well. So, so I think um, uh, when I say I rewrote it, though, I didn't I didn't ever I didn't throw it away and start again. I refactored it to the point at which it was a different game by the time I finished. Um, so, and that was also a learning exercise. So, I think I think the love of learning is a really powerful motivator if harnessed correctly.
0: Yes, and I, and I think that's a trait that a lot of uh, Rust developers share, from what I've kind of seen in the, in the community, which is really, really cool. And it's something that really attracted me uh, to the to the language itself.
1: Yeah, and I think with Rust as well, because because there isn't much out there yet, and it's becoming better, and, and there's more there's more libraries out there. I think um, you have an opportunity to really make a mark in game dev in Rust at the moment, which is um, yeah, anyone who's getting involved. Um, you know, has the ability to be that library creator, or to to kind of make their mark in a particular part of game development if they want to write a library or something like that. So, so I think there's a lot of opportunity, as well as the fact that it's quite daunting. Um, it's it's interesting because I think a lot of people, as well, um, need to think about whether they want to be a games developer, whether they want to be a games library developer, <laughs> or a game engine developer. Yeah. And I yeah. think it's really interesting because a lot of people actually want. To be the second one, not the first one, and um, people who gravitate um, to to writing libraries and engines—it's are, are, uh, it's interesting. There's a different psyche about them. It's not wrong or or right to do one or the other. It's just it's good to know which one you are, um, and then yeah. kind of invest in in that area. Um, games when you're actually building a game is. There's there's an awful lot of, of slog and iteration and trying to get the gameplay right and and there's a lot of design in there which isn't necessary doesn't necessarily appeal to everyone. Some people just want to write a really fast particle system and that's great. You know that's fine. We need people like that too. So so it, and there's nothing wrong with wanting to do that. The danger is if you if you really want to be a games engine developer and you actually are writing a game, you're going to struggle because your game's never going to come out. Yes, You're always going to be writing it and tinkering it with it. I think. I, I,
0: I think I've kind of changed a lot over uh, my professional development career. So I think before I was very much about compiling my own Linux system, maybe using like Slackware or building it from scratch and compiling all of my binaries. I didn't, wouldn't use a package manager. And I, I, there was always that moniker, like um, write games, not engines. It was kind Mm -hmm. of like that phrasing went around and I was actually more drawn to Writing engines, I actually thought that writing tools mm. and and um, map editors and things like that was always super interesting to me. And I, I I was almost convinced that sometimes I would just start a new project just so I could go and write some new tooling. Um, and I think the older I've got, suddenly I just I just wanted to use a Mac because it was Unix and it worked, and That's I didn't cool. have to spend ages configuring Wi-Fi drivers and compiling binaries and things. And i have actually been using Linux for the past eight years again. Uh, kind of fell back into it. Um but yeah, I think I, I now I'm more interested in actually writing games and um rather than writing tools and engines. So it's kind of swung the other way for myself.
1: And I think it depends on where you're at and, and, and what your interests are at the moment. I don't think either is wrong. I think I think the whole write games not engines thing is, is is a bit problematic because we need people to write engines too, otherwise we wouldn't have it. Yeah. So especially in Rust, right? Otherwise you won't have a game. So so I think um, I think for me, write games not engines unless you're an engine developer is is an important thing. But also Absolutely. know which one you want to do and don't and don't try and write your own engine if you're right if you really want to ship a game. If you want to ship a game, then um, then you know, use reuse as much as you possibly can um and and um learn about how to balance and how to market um and how to do design. Those are the key things. The tech technology isn't really the constraint anymore. Engines are so good these days. There's an awful lot of game dev theory to learn and you have to learn about, you know, how if you're writing a 3D game for example, you have to learn about skinning and, and animation and things like that and and um or work with people who know that stuff. But but even if Uh, and you you also need to learn about particle systems, you need to learn about entity component systems, there's there's an awful lot to learn especially if you're learning an engine Um, but but work on the game, don't don't worry about tinkering whereas if you are wanting to um, uh, if you're more interested in the library side of things, that is okay Um, but if you want to ship a game reuse as much as you can and I would say probably if you you want to ship a game and you're using uh, Rust at the moment that is going to be a challenge for you um, you are yeah. going to have to. You're, you're taking on a. You know, you're in hard mode. You're taking on quite a big, um, uh, a, like a big task there. And as long as you know that and you're happy with that, then that's fine. Um, I think, um, and it's getting better, isn't it? With with Ross and Godot, and we've also got, um, you know, potentially uh, the possibility that coming to other engines too. So, so there's quite a lot of there's quite a lot of good signs. But if you're looking right now for technology to to build a, a game design on. Pick stuff that's out there um, that works already, um, I think.
0: Do, do you think that the kind of commercial versus open source aspect comes into this? So if um, you're if you're trying to write a game to make money because you need it to be commercially successful, then yeah. you'll be putting yourself at a massive disadvantage right now by writing your own engine and I think doing, so. doing all of your own tooling. Yes. But if you're working on open source, maybe there's not the pressure to to release so quickly because you can yeah. kind of take your time a bit more. and
1: You really need to decide whether you're doing this for money or as a profession or not, irrespective of whether it's your job um, or it isn't. I think if if you're doing it as a profession, you have many more constraints on you. You have to figure out, are you going to work with a publisher? If not, how is anyone ever going to find out about your game? Um, you know, do, do people really want to play it? Where's the market? What are the similar games out there? And how much have they sold? What reviews have they got? Um, it's a very, very different type of... Um, uh, activity than making games for fun. Um, doesn't mean actually that open source games sometimes are um, do make money and, and they're not necessarily, there's not a full overlap there, but if you're making it as a hobby you make what you like, make what's fun, don't worry about taking on bright um, and edge at the same time, you'll have a lot of fun doing it, you'll learn a lot and there's a lot of value to that. If you're making a game and you want to make a living out of it and you want to make actual money then you have a very different journey ahead of you. Um, and, th- and that's fine, it's just different. Um, but I think with the open source thing, I think that that's quite an interesting point because because there are people out there who are making money off I.O. games and, and I'm um, in the process of just kicking off my own I.O. game project, um, partly for fun but partly also to explore the space from a commercial perspective and see see what, what it's like to try and build a game that gains traction for free and then find another um, revenue source from that. That's quite an interesting place to me. And also the idea of building a game open source really appeals to me um, maybe a game building a game open source that isn't necessarily a purely a hobby project is fascinating to me too that that there's an idea that you can actually make money off open source games projects or certainly um allow them to pay their way so they're not uh, making they're not losing you money um it seems quite interesting to me and i think um, that's definitely where i'm kind of moving towards next i think um with my own games development journey
0: i, th- I think there's there's quite a few games out there, um, especially in the kind of Mm roguelike-y genre, particularly where when you have a real fan base of of people that really love that kind of genre, they're very devoted to it. And so you get games like Dwarf Fortress. I mean, Tarn is is making a... Pretty decent income, uh, or at least enough to sustain him. And he's kind of struck up a deal to create this new graphical version, which is producing on Steam. Yeah, and you've got Unreal World, and, and there's a few other games you know that are kind of being developed open source that you know are either kind of through donations from fans, or they they have a version on their website which is free to download, um, like Unreal World, and then they have a Steam version. And I think Dwarf Fortress, the Steam version, will be probably you have to pay for it
1: yeah and there's a few extra things like the tile set is is new but 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 very little about the game is different um with the paid version as far as i'm aware the um the graphics can be different and there might be a few little extra add-ons but but they're they're trying to stay true to the open source community or not the open source community sorry the free um uh community they've already built up over time and i think for me um I think that there's there's a lot of value in that community and I think possibly more value in the community around a game and the game players themselves than there is in the actual code of the game, which is why maybe releasing it open source isn't isn't a terrible idea. So some people can can build the game from scratch and run it themselves. Maybe that's okay. Maybe maybe if they want to see it developed and and supported further, then they'll they'll um buy the Steam version just for simplicity or convenience. Um, there's a big argument, or not an argument, a discussion, debate raging about whether it's the right thing to do to release maybe a cut-down version and a, and a premium version. I'm not sure what the answer is for that yet, and I wouldn't want to comment, but I think that that's the kind of learning of the community. I think um, the indie market is is very saturated right now. If you want to, again, this is for people who really want to make games for money, if you want to release a game, it's very difficult to, to make enough noise. Unless you're already known, it's very difficult to make enough noise uh, to really get your game noticed unless you sign a deal with a publisher, which is a really reasonable thing to want to do and, and actually de-risks a lot of the process around professional game dev. Um, and I'd recommend that journey for 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 people who are just starting out because they'll gain lots of contacts and also um, you know, gain a lot of expertise as they're building the game. Out, I think it's a really good way of doing it. Um, and it's worth the extra effort. Um, if your game is any good, then uh, and it's going to make enough money for it to be worth building, then a publisher will be interested in it. That's the, that's a simple truth because they will want to make the money too, and they want to help you, and, and they want to see it through. And, and you might find it easier uh, to go that route if you, um, other than just trying to do it yourself, like I did, which was which was a real challenge. But I think um, but I think the, there's an interesting thing around if you if you're building a game and you're maybe releasing it on Steam and you want to charge I don't know fifteen bucks for it. Um, there's a huge barrier to entry for a gamer coming into your game. So which is why I'm interested in this idea of creating a free I.O. game that people can literally just open their browser and start playing. And and, and the barrier to entry for the community is so low at that point. Um, and if the game is good enough that it gains traction, um, then you've got a community, which again is, is valuable. Um, and then if you can build a community around that, potentially there might be other ways of actually um, making a living from that. Um and that's the kind yeah. of what I'm interested in exploring at the moment from a as a kind of a sort of half I'm not quite a professional game stamp, but I have been in the past, <laughs> working for a company at the moment. But but um but yeah, I think I'm kind of interested in in that as a kind of a revenue model for the future of of indie games business or, or any future for it.
0: I think that's really worth exploring, especially like when you release a game commercially, you open yourself up to a lot more criticism because people have there has been that barrier to entry and people have paid money and you yeah, release it on Steam exactly. and then it's a field day, you know, and if people kind of, you know, that we, we've, we've seen comments where people have played the game for a hundred hours yeah, and then there's yeah, just yeah, one yeah. small thing, one tiny gripe, and they leave a negative review and that pushes your rating down and, yeah, it's you know, could potentially cost you a lot of sales. Whereas yeah. kind of with open source games and games where there is a free version, um, you may be, don't open yourself up to such.
1: I think so, and I think that the, I, I think the fact, yeah, that there's a barrier there, to, is 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 challenging, isn't it? I think um, if we could remove that barrier in such a way that, sure, it's free, but if you like it, you pay for it, um, and there's enough of a social contract there that it makes it worthwhile, then I think that that's good. I think, um, it, it, I think it's a better relationship between. Games dev and gamer potentially, especially if you're an indie and you just don't have the ability to put the time and effort into a to a really kind of big premium release. So I'm thinking of of a game that's coming out, soon or Crusader Kings Three, which is a game that I pre-ordered, and, and you just look at the amount of effort that you put into that game, um, or they put into that game um, in order to do dev diaries and the the quality, the graphics and the sound, you know, that that's a that's going to be a huge release, and there's a there's a certain understanding. That when you buy a game like that and you're paying your £40, £50, pounds, you're getting a really premium product. Um, if you're an indie developer and you're asking for 15 or £20, pounds, you're never going to be able to put in proportionally the same amount of effort that a big team like that is putting in. But on the same day that I pre-order Credit Kings 2, I, I bought the, the game on Steam, the Shapes game, Shapes uh, with a Z.io, which... Um, buying Michael Tobias, who, because, just because I I didn't have to. It was £6 for his bundle, uh, but I could play it for free. But I just thought, actually, I want to support this guy, and he's doing a good job, and he's, he's released his game open source, and that's pretty cool. So And I, I had very different expectations about those two purchases, and I think for a new aspiring indie professional dev, it's very easy for us to look at those huge games and be quite daunted, whereas actually maybe there's a way through this minefield of, of trying to ship a game that people aren't going to hate on um uh that's uh, that has a better relationship between gamer and game stuff maybe i am kind of exploring that at the moment and trying to think about what that might mean and the reason for building this little io game that i'm i'm starting to build is to try and explore that space a little bit
0: yeah i, I think there's huge wins in having a having a game that's open source or a game that's free where you can build up a community of people that just genuinely love the game and they'll give you honest feedback and yeah, encourage exactly. you and, and it sounds like the kind of motivation really drives you You know, when, when people are saying
1: it's hey massive, i love this game or like it. and i think if you build it if you build it open source you've got that from the beginning and it's very easy for people to say it's Very easy to counter negative criticism, which is either going to be I don't like the game, in which case, well, you haven't paid for it, you know, go find a different game you prefer, or this doesn't work in the game, or there's a bug. Well, you know, if you're a developer, you can open a PR and you can fix the bug, you know, that's 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 quite cool, and I quite like that collaborative nature of games development mm-hmm. where you're um, the lines between dev and gamer are kind of blurred slightly, um, and I think that's that's quite cool, uh, so so yeah, I think. Um the, the kind of drip feed motivation that hopefully that will come through working on a game like that um, is quite interesting. Um, it's very, very different to, to how I've done. I did Sol trader, SolTrader is still closed source, and it was released as a Steam release and HIO and things like that. And, uh, but this is a new experiment, and I think it'll be interesting to see whether or not it, it works.
0: So tell me a little bit about this new project.
1: Sure. Um, so uh, the game at the moment is called tinyking.io. There's literally nothing there at the moment. If you if you look at it, hopefully by the time you listen to this podcast, there will actually be more there and there might be something you can actually play. Um, so it's a little um, kind of a worker placement game that I'm, I'm working on. So the idea is that you are a tiny king or a, a king in charge of a tiny kingdom. And um, the idea is that you um, start with just yourself and a few um farmsteads basically so you've got three families that are part of your little kingdom and you are um you're in charge of them and you're in charge of what they do and, and sort of organizing them in order to um to do better uh, and to be more efficient maybe build more houses build more um farm more crops and that kind of thing but crucially it's not like a real-time a strategy kind of factory game or a building game. Um, you don't see little people running about. You're placing people strategically in order to get particular things done. And um, uh, the game is very much centred around the people, rather like Soul Trader was centred around the people. And the current plan is for characters to... For example, if you put two people together working on a particular thing that requires two people, they don't like each other. They're going to get unhappy, and they're going to get unhappy with you. Um, if if they do like each other, they might end up forming a relationship, which might be a good or a bad thing. They'll end up having children. Um, they'll eventually end up growing old, um, and you want them to educate the next generation in in the way in their skills, and then eventually um, your character as well will die, and you'll hopefully by then you'll have. Some kind of air that you can pass your little kingdom onto. So the idea is that it's a kind of a kingdom-building game, but it's all about the people. Um, and it, it's specifically, it's turn-based um, worker placement, focusing on getting the relationships right, um, so that the the kind of the little kingdom that you build stands the test of time. Uh, so yeah, Tiny is where the um, is where the game is, is currently uh, hosted. Like I said, there's not much there yet. Um, on GitHub, it's on my GitHub under ChrisADP slash TinyKing if people are interested in the development process.
0: That sounds exciting.
1: Yeah, hopefully. Very early. And all of those ideas are subject to change. I may turn it into a real-time game. I don't know yet. But but it's the idea is to, to create something that's immediately fun to pick up and play. That's the idea.
0: Yeah, and I'm, I'm always fascinated with your Game ideas, and I'm hoping that we're going to see more procedural generation
1: and absolutely, there will be definitely procedural generation. The characters certainly, I'll do some simple map procedural generation, but maybe not go to the elaborate depths of the history generation in Soul Trader. But certainly there'll be elements of that there, and the idea will be that the characters will uh, very much kind of be. Uh, dotted around the landscape, so so as you explore, you'll meet other little farmsteads and little people that you can then bring into your kingdom, and they will all be procedurally generated. Uh, that would be quite fascinating to see um, to see kind of how the interactions happen. Um, so yeah, I've, I've I've got some ideas on that yet, but um, yeah, we'll we'll see where that goes.
0: Yeah, it's always it's always fascinating to see how those interactions kind of develop, and one of the things with procedural generation is like you can't always. Guess or account for every interaction.
1: And that could be really problematic when you're trying to balance a game. <laughs> so I think, uh, or
0: when you're demoing to a journalist. Yeah, the game we,
1: show. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. There was one case where we were—I was in the middle of a, a podcast, I think, or a game show, i forget—and the—and the um the character that we were creating in Soul Trader actually died during generation, <laughs> which was really difficult. Um, and and the guy was like, "Oh, that's pretty cool," but I was like scrabbling to make a note to fix. So it didn't happen again, but um, <clears throat> but yeah, you always have to to figure out with your prop gen um, how how much do you want it to affect gameplay. And with Soul Trader, it's very much I wanted to affect gameplay, so I really lent on the whole idea of yes, this will be um, if the game game doesn't generate a mechanic in that particular city in that planet, you can't fix your ship, and that's just tough. And that was a real challenge because I ended up having to write a whole bunch of Sort of fixing code that went to and, and placed people in, in important professions, so that characters couldn't get completely stuck, um, which would have happened otherwise. So that was that was a, a real challenge, and some of the mission structure as well was was quite difficult. I would write the way it worked was it, it would look for a particular characters in the world that had particular relationships. So for example, if you had a, a character that was estranged from from their wife, um, it might make a, a mission to investigate an affair or something like that. And you had to go and find out proof that this was actually happening. The only problem was it was very difficult to test because in order to test it, I had to go and find a character that was having an affair in order to figure out whether the mission actually worked. And um, that was that took forever. And, um, and some of these missions, I could never guarantee that, that people would ever see them in the game because um, uh, some of the, the circumstances surrounding them are very specific and they may never come up. Um, so so that there is a real difficulty with knowing how much blockchain to put in and how much you want to, to really control the gameplay experience or whether you're really creating a sandbox that, that really could be completely broken, but at least it's fun to interact with. And I kind of went for the second one more than the first one. And some people didn't like it. They said, oh, this game's very unbalanced. You can never do anything. And, um, and other people loved it because they they realised and they kind of got the nature of what they're dealing with, that they're really just exploring a, uh, a kind of a network of characters and, and enjoying the stories that come out of it. So, yeah, I think it's 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 a big challenge to get that right.
0: Yeah, I, th- I think it's something that Dwarf Fortress and, and games like that have faced where there's quite a big churn of people playing the game and, and ditching it very early because they're kind of overwhelmed by, yeah, absolutely well, what do I do? Because there's a lot of hand-holding that happens in modern games, kind of through yeah, tutorials. Definitely, and, definitely. you know And people don't kind of explore like, I sound really old now, but like I used to <laughs> back in the late 80s, early 90s, where like there was a lot of games that didn't hold your hand. And actually the fun was in the exploring. And something that always fascinated me about Soul Trader was the fact that you could, there wasn't, there was a short tutorial but actually the fun of the game is to go and find your story yeah in all of uh, these interactions find all. out who you
1: have Dig- related to find out what they've done make some money along the way that was the whole point um and people aren't really used to that now people are used to being told exactly what to do in what order and um i'm i'm not sure about that i'm not sure that's a, a good thing but but then when i didn't really have a tutorial early on people were Furious with me for not including a tutorial because they couldn't figure out how to play the game. So you have to kind of make some allowances, but I think um, there's a real there's a real balance for trying to. Am I trying to educate people how to play my game because it's how I think it should be played, or should I be creating a game that the people really want to play, um, uh, the, the game that they actually want, as opposed to the game that I want to create? And that's that's a a really difficult creative decision for any kind of creative person. You know, should we be creating something for our that we know our audience would like, or should would be creating something that we are happy with? Um, and that I found that that doesn't overlap as nearly as often as I wish it did. <laughs>
0: yes. Agreed. Well, uh, thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, I will link to all of your games uh, in the show notes and um, any kind of links from things that we've talked about uh, will be in the show notes. Um, where can people find you online?
1: So um, I'm Chris NDB on Twitter. Um, and uh, most of my links are there. You can find me. Uh, I write a, a blog about agile delivery at deliverydouble.com. Um, I'm also um, currently working in a, a company called Gower Street, gower.st, which is a film. Um, uh, like I said, I was working in the film business. So I, I work on a predictive analytics platform. That's my day job. Um, and I kind of help run the technology side of that business. Um, but, yeah, the main places to get me are NdP, And if you're interested in Tiny King, then that's tinyking.io.